Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Arcana Uncorked. The podcast where we uncork some homebrew and discuss whether or not it is right for your game. I'm Patrick. And I'm Andrew. And today, Andrew, we've got something that I'm quite excited about, in case you couldn't tell by the extensive notes in our document. We're talking about really big monsters. Yes. (laughs) Yes, we are. As everybody knows, monsters go from tiny to gargantuan in D&D, and today we are focusing exclusively on gargantuan. We would be focusing on colossal if that was still a size category they allowed. Yes, for some reason for 5e, they just cut it off at gargantuan, which is a friendly reminder to our audience out there. This means that the space that the creature occupies, or at least has effective control over, is 20 by 20 feet or larger. So this is really roughly everything from like a like an orca whale, something like that humpback whale, all the way up to, you know, your Tarrasque mountain-sized killer thing that will crush you. This is a really infinite-sized, if you wanted to make it a giant planet, according to the rules, that would be a gargantuan creature. Yeah, yeah, like the fucking Undead Moon Outer Evil. I forget what it's called, but it's definitely a thing in previous editions. And somehow that is the same size category as a whale. Yeah, which, you know, gets to the first question that we really have to talk about, which is what, what the heck does gargantuan scale even look like when you're trying to run an encounter? Because on average, I'd say in a campaign, most of your encounters are going to be centered around fighting monsters that are somewhere between tiny and huge, huge being 15 by 15 foot. Now, huge is like, as a concept, being a real human person who is somewhere between five and seven feet tall. That's something that I can encapsulate. Like, a a huge creature is like the size of a moose, a large moose would probably be a huge creature. An adult dragon is definitely a huge creature and is probably about the size of a bus, which is, that's something I can actually draw an analog to and understand. Once you get to Gargantuan, you have a really hard time thinking about it being a creature. Maybe not on the smaller end of Gargantuan, but very quickly it gets beyond our standard definitions of life. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there is a certain amount of suspension of disbelief that goes into this, because gargantuan land animals of the size and scale of, like, you know, a blue whale can't exist in the real world. There has to be some magic involved here, uh, because the square cube law is fucky. Yeah, no, but it's for creatures that are underwater, it works. You know, like, blue whales are massive, you know, upwards of 100 feet sometimes, which is, you know, still very big but it can actually physically work. So when I'm talking about D&D, you know, it's not like you have to justify why a gargantuan creature exists, right? Like, these things can be forces of nature or otherwise magically imbued in such a way that their physiology sustains their size. But I think where I really often get caught up on these things is you get to a point where you have to resolve a tension between creatures and the terrain and the environment that they're found in. So, like, for example, we usually play D&D on maps. If you have a creature that is 100 feet in every direction, your map is going to be very big and unwieldy, and little things on your map are effectively meaningless. Goodbye, trolley. Hello, Tarask. 
Yeah, I mean, at that point, if you're fighting a creature that big, you might as well just say, okay, this side of the map is the huge flesh wall that is this creature. Uh, direct attacks that direction. But that's unsatisfying in D&D combat, since that's not dynamic at all. Right, yeah. It's hard when you have a creature that really can't move, because if it moves, you have to change the entire map to accommodate for its movement. And additionally, it gets really hard when you want to move through the creature. And if something, you know, if something's effective threat range is like 50 by 50, and its size, its actual physical proportion is only half of that, that means that your character is technically only ever attacking its, like, claws when it, like, reaches out to, like, stab the character. There's all sorts of, like, little does-this-make-sense that goes along with that. Yeah, I would, I would argue, like... The concept of a single target attack coming from a gargantuan creature of that size to a medium-sized creature of, you know, the usual 5x5 five five grid, it just kind of falls apart pretty quickly. Like, I, it feels like every attack that that thing makes is going to be AoE. Mm. I'm going to put a pin in that because there's definitely an ability that one of the monsters we're looking at has that just, it's like, I don't know if this makes sense when it, is interacting with, like, normal-sized things. Yeah, it's a real concern. You have to really try and deal with, like, how creatures interact with it. And to that extent, I think you also get to the question of, with a creature of that size, what is your player doing to meaningfully hurt it? If you compare, like, a medium-sized creature to a 50-foot creature, you know, giving it a cut with a short sword is like putting a splinter in it, maybe, which is, it might hurt, or sting, but it's it's not it's gonna be one of those things where even a death by a thousand cuts would still be too few. Yeah, because a short sword might not even penetrate its armor, really. Now there are there are ways that other systems deal with this. You can go the route of like the Hobbit, where you can't possibly penetrate the dragon's armor. You just have to aim for bits where it's not armored. And that makes sense to an extent, but not for every attack your players are doing. Right. That's the kind of thing that requires a specialized tool to do. Yeah. And then there's, there's like, systems that aren't D&D. Uh, the one that I've been reading up recently is Savage Worlds, that literally just say, okay, there's artillery weapons and there's smaller arms weapons, and you can't do meaningful damage to a tank with smaller arms fire. Yeah, you you need to, and yeah, the actual name for it in at least the Savage Worlds game we're playing is Mega Damage, and that's one, hilarious, but two, I think, actually gets at a real concept that some things are just an order of magnitude more powerful, such that you can't classify them as the same type of effect. Yeah, yeah, uh, Mega Damage comes from Palladium Rifts, we're playing Savage Rifts right now, so that's where that name comes from, but the concept is in the core rulebook as well. So, trying to hurt gargantuan creatures in a way that doesn't feel cheesy can be difficult. You can do the sort of smog, or what I like to call the Shadow of the Colossus system, of trying to make weak points. But are you really running like a traditional monster then, or is that more just a timed puzzle encounter with damage elements? Yeah, that's, a I think, an important question. Like, to some extent, you can build like a ganon encounter where you know you know when you want to hit because there's a shiny fleshy orb that is definitely what you want to do 
But in that case, you have to ask questions round one. Does this make sense for turn-based combat and action economy? Is it going to be satisfying for the players to interact with whatever this weakness is? And then also, like you were mentioning, it's really... I, it's really weird to have a creature be that way when, in reality, like the only piece you can hit, which in standard D&D, theoretically, any piece of the creature you hit is the piece that deals damage to it. It's weird for that to actually be a smaller thing. I'd almost, at that point, say that the rest of the creature is not a creature. It's an environment effect, and the creature is just the, the vulnerable point. Yeah, which would be a fine way to play it, honestly. I feel like I'm going to get flack for saying that there isn't an artillery distinction in D&D. Because there is, it's the difference between a non-magical weapon and a magic weapon, and many gargantian creatures, including the ones we're looking at, do just have straight-up immunity to non-magical attacks as their kind of immunity to small arms fire. I find that less satisfying of an answer, but maybe my definition of magic weapons and what other people think magic weapons are is like, somewhere different yeah i so i think it's worth bringing up one thing that wizards has done to try and address a piece of this particular like the weak points thing uh, that i want to bring up is in the mythic odyssey of theros there is a monster called Trimocratus. uh anyway it's a giant kraken super kraken more or less and it has a mythic trait which means when it hits zero hit points you open up four cracks in the carapace revealing four hearts then you have to kill the hearts and while the hearts are exposed, it is very hard to kill because it's just super powerful. So, like, there are ways that you can do that, I guess. And I think phased encounters maybe make it more meaningful where maybe you have a damage wall and then you have more interactive thing. But you have to have something more interactive than just, you know, continue to whittle down at this thing piece by piece. Yeah, this is where we come to, like, the idea of running gargantuan monsters as environments or dungeons instead of actual monsters. Pat, I remember you ran, it wasn't actually a creature, it was a construct, but you ran a, a getting swallowed by a giant whale encounter where, you know, you weren't actually killing the whale, you were killing subsystems inside the whale to destroy it. Yeah, no, this was a one-shot that I ran with a group while we were at the beach, and it was, yeah, like a Jonah and the whale, you get swallowed by the whale, but then all of a sudden you have to, you know, destroy things from the inside. It was corrupted by some oozes, so there are a lot of, like, ooze fight things to take down the nervous system of the mechanical whale. And so I think that's a cool way of doing it. You know, obviously there you lose some of the, like, the drama of a combat with a giant thing but i think you also have to recognize that like as fun and cute as those encounters are when you see them in media you know it's often like super super powered people with ridiculous artifact weapons that are using their abilities to take down this giant thing in a way that you don't really ever want any individual member of your party to be in a 5e campaign except maybe at top tier play which is a very limited fraction of where people play the game anyway. Yeah, but also probably where you're fighting these gargantuan creatures, hopefully. Yeah. Um, <laughs> none of this feels like fifth level party material. No. But that's, that's a big point, is that if you're going to run gargantuan creatures, uh, they've got to be, whether you're going to run them as an environment or as a creature, there has to be lore around them, there has to be plot points, because... 
Maybe you can indicate to your players that the thing's completely invulnerable except to certain special materials or certain spells. Right, yeah, I think it's like any sort of, I mean, I wouldn't call this a monster hunt. We'll talk a little more about why that isn't necessarily appropriate for these kind of creatures, but similar to how if you are playing Curse of Strahd and your party's going to be going up against one or multiple vampires at some point, you know, you want to build up that threat so that they understand what's going to be effective and what's not by the time they reach at least the climactic encounter. So that way, they're not just caught off guard by all the things they can and cannot do. So I'd say it's like a similar similar thing you want to do with these creatures. Like, right, you want to have built up some sort of mythos that party members can work towards understanding or have heard about, uh, especially for something large enough to, like, create tidal pools in the ocean. These things are definitely going to have been at least discussed before. And that really helps your characters, one, come in prepared physically for the fight and to build up some sort some of that role play momentum that makes big encounters feel really special yeah and then it's not such an ass pal when you know the fighter throws the mythic artifact javelin and suddenly the creature is vulnerable to more mundane forms of damage when i say mundane it's probably magical damage but magical damage that isn't coming from like god tier weapons <laughs> Yeah, no, like, I don't, I don't have a problem with MacGuffins existing for things like this, but it definitely feels better if the MacGuffin is something the party worked for, knowing that it was going to be used for this purpose, rather than something that you just happen to place in the arena in which you fight the monster. This sort of, like, monstrous weakness thing is something that other systems do, and I think is a really cool thing to bring into D&D sometimes. I'm playing a lot of Monster of the Week right now, a Powered by the Apocalypse game, and every monster you encounter in that game can only be hurt permanently by its weakness. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that obviously the way that the monster manual is written by default in 5e doesn't come up super frequently. You know, even for creatures like vampires, it's not one of those things where you, you know, you can't hurt them without them but you know there is precedent for them existing and these types of vulnerabilities and particularly i think when you want a type of monster or even a specific monster like one of these titanic forces to be the overarching end of a plot being able to tie the plot into preparing to kill that creature is a fantasy that comes it's a trope that comes up very frequently and i think it's a good one for players to explore yeah i i think this sort of like overcoming this otherwise insane invulnerability is something that makes a lot of sense for when you're dealing with these huge, huge creatures that are oftentimes more forces of nature than anything we would recognize as, like, animal. I do want to bring up one more point when we're talking about how player characters fight gargantuan creatures, and that's the option that they fight it, but maybe don't need to kill it. You know, Pat, that I'm a huge fan of alternate win conditions. Absolutely. You're a fan every time that I put one in, and you put one in for most of the one-shots that you do as of late. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big thing. Mostly because I feel like, this is a longer conversation, but I feel like at a certain point, adventurers always being just able to defeat the baddie gets a little bit too cliched. 
So for these huge creatures, they may really be just sort of invulnerable and you can't kill them per se, but maybe you can beat them back to sleep or bind them or just figure out a way to make them go away. Yeah. And that allows the DM to make the thing borderline unkillable or actually unkillable, but not have the players feel absolutely impotent. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to do and especially with these forces where if you're dealing with a, a proper titan who may actually be serving a greater force role in the environment and therefore like killing or defeating it would actually lead to catastrophe being able to push characters in the direction of okay you really can't kill this thing or even if you can you maybe shouldn't because of the role that it plays so let's try and do something more interesting and in a that can take the form of like trying to stop its rage or its corruption if it's been possessed by some malevolent force. I think as long as you as a DM are being cognizant of what the player expectations are and trying to telegraph what options they have in front of them for non-violent combat finishes, that can be really satisfying. It can also be really confusing if the party goes in thinking they have to kill something and then just like wastes an hour of real-life time throwing arrows at something that's never going to die. Yeah. Also, I love what you mentioned about, you know, killing something and making things worse. As long as you've given the party the opportunity to learn that this thing is integral to the natural order in some way, do not be afraid to absolutely bring things to shit when they do decide to kill it. Yeah. You know, like for some of the ones we're going to talk about coming up, you know, like you, uh, you managed to kill the thing that's been holding back, uh, you know, a massive army of aquatic wildlife. And all of a sudden they are off the rails and ready to go into a blood frenzy. Like that's something that you might have to deal with. So, you know, as long as long as you feel like you're doing something reasonably to forecast that to your players, assuming it's appropriate and they're not blindsided by the fact this is possible... I'd say go for it. Punish the characters if they choose the violent route when given an alternative. So we're going to move on here, and we're going to briefly talk about a very specific environment that players might find themselves in, especially if they're fighting the creatures that we're talking about today, because these gargantuan titans are primarily aquatic, which brings a whole new layer of nonsense into this discussion. Everyone's favorite type of encounter, an underwater encounter. Very good. D&D is just like Mario, in that the underwater levels invariably kind of suck. Yep. Welcome to the water temple, where everything sucks and nobody has fun. Um... <laughs> that said, I mean, you can make underwater encounters fun. The problem is, is that by default, most of the player options in the player's handbook are bad underwater. If you're not using a piercing melee weapon and you're a marshal, you're going to have a bad time. And if you're a fire mage, and remember, of the elemental spells in the player's handbook, fire is like most of them. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a bad time. Yeah, I mean, what the... The most commonly picked and 
most powerful damage spells in uh, 5e at 5th level when you're like picking their level spells are Fireball, which is not very good to use underwater, and Lightning Bolt, which could be very dangerous for your allies when used underwater. So, uh... <laughs> I was gonna say, is a little bit too good to use underwater. <laughs> yeah, and you really learn that your character choices matter when you enter a niche environment like underwater combat. Yeah, usually uh, elemental damage types is just like a resistance rock, paper, scissors. But when you get underwater, it starts to matter a lot. There are ways to ignore the problems of underwater. The most common one is freedom of movement. And I think there are magic items that do similar things. But freedom of movement is a fourth level spell and it helps a single party member out for an hour. Yeah, there's like water breathing too, which at least gives you like not having to worry about drowning, but it doesn't give you the same level of movement that I guess counters what I would call soft CR scaling that happens in environment design. Because really, looking at it from the usual, I want to balance my encounter based on the Dungeon Master's Guide table, when you're underwater, one, the party's damage per round is decreasing. They're effectively at a lower level than they really are normally. And creatures underwater probably do more damage because they're going to have advantage on the creatures who are having trouble moving around. You're going to have lower mobility, decreased vision, action economy is going to have to be spent differently. So the fact that like a fourth level spell helps one person deal with some, but not even all of those issues, speaks a lot to just how costly it is to transition someone from overwater to underwater encounters. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've wanted to run like fall underwater games, like short campaigns. Honestly, just the, the stuff in the player's handbook isn't good for it. I'd have to write my own supplement of like character options that work underwater. <laughs> You don't want the entire party to be, like, Tritons or Water Ganassi. I mean, that would be funny, but, like, only for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. Nautical campaigns are a thing of their own being, whether it's over water or underwater. And I think it's good good in, if that's going to be a major piece of your campaign, to, like, let that be at least mildly forecasted to your players so they don't totally box themselves out of that. Or if they do, it's their own choice, and they can really dig into that as a character concept. Maybe they really hate swimming. Non-sequitur, but if anybody has a good supplement on how boats work, please, 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 God, send it to me. <laughs> Willing to buy better boat combat. Anything <laughs> will do. And please. Like, I've read so many, and all of them are, like, pretty mediocre. Not that's a different conversation, but one we will get back to eventually. Uh, The point about underwater combat is your CR calculations don't work if the party's not prepared. It could be very frustrating to your party. So as usual, just telegraphing that it's a possibility and maybe providing things to mitigate the downsides is probably good. (laughs) Yeah, you know, maybe you've got a good potion that gives you gills, like a potion of, um... Alter self, maybe not too bad a thing to have, or maybe you, you know, there's a giant, a giant chain lever at the opposite end of the room that if you pull it drains water from this weird chamber you're in and gives you a chance to like swap up what's going on. Mm. But don't, don't send them into a water encounter that is theoretically appropriately challenged and expect it to go swimmingly, pun intended. (sighs) Even things as simple as offering the fighter a piercing weapon, like a trident or a spear, because, you know, great swords don't really work underwater. 
even stuff as simple as that, that'll be them not automatically having disadvantage every single turn and probably make your players a lot happier overall. All right. So with that discussion out of the way, we'll go ahead and actually discuss the homebrew we're going to be looking at today, which is All Beneath the Yonder Seas and Streams, otherwise known as Abyss for short, which is a compendium by the Haven Discord. Uh, The Haven Discord is a group of Dungeons & Dragons homebrewers. You'll see their stuff show up on r slash Nerf Arcana. The way that I got introduced to it was via their All the Lights in the Sky Are Stars or Atlas compendium, which was focused on things that are celestial in nature, stars, suns, and they just like to release often giant compendiums filled with monsters, subclasses, homebrews, items, spells. A lot of cool stuff, so I would recommend joining the Discord, checking things out, or looking up their account on Reddit. Yeah, um, I think they post under just a number of their individual accounts. I know that uh, Ayana is one of them who has written The Hunter, which we've mentioned before, definitely. We really like Atlas. We've used it for ages. It probably has the be- the most used homebrew spell in our campaign, Starlight Spear. And we were really excited to see this long-awaited compendium come out. Yep. So this is, like Atlas was about celestial things, this is focused on, as you can guess by the title, and our discussion today, nautical things. So you have a new subclass for literally every single class in the game, including mm-hmm. artificers for nautical subclasses. Uh, you got a suite of different items to use, spells, including there is this new kind of class tag for spells called Hydromancy, which is kind of interesting and recommend looking into that. And then of course, monsters. Definitely check out the whole thing, but today we're really just gonna focus on two of the monsters that are in a subsection of monsters called titans. So these are specifically sea titans that are large, by large I mean gargantuan, end game level threats, CRs above 25, um, that are built out with all sorts of both combat things, lair actions, extra legendary actions, uh, as well as a decent bit of actual like lore and tidbits that will help you if you want to try and insert them into your own campaign. Yeah, it hopefully now makes sense why we've been calling these things forces of nature, <laughs> because these are kind of primordial representations of the power of the ocean in different aspects. And in general, these are the sort of things that are not going to pay particularly close attention to the player characters. They're not malicious, they're just big and there. Yeah, one in particular, like, strictly speaking, doesn't speak languages and is, I think, kind of just a creature and the giant monstrosity. And then the other one has a little bit more complexity built into the description anyway, but is still not, like, the kind of thing that is actively terrorizing, unless you want it to. But I think there's there's something to be said about letting it be a little more nuanced than here's a giant monster, here's a kaiju that wants to just squash everything go have fun. Yeah, definitely. So the first one of these is the Sierra 26 Solution. This thing is a giant, I want to say whale is probably the closest thing it's to, but larger than any earth whale by quite a bit, who has magical powers over storms kind of baked into it. 
Yeah, no, this thing, uh, they describe it as 200 feet in length with a maw 30 feet in diameter, so that gives you a sense of uh, what sort of scale we're going for here. It is, you know, this is biblical proportions whale. By the way, the art in this book is just Kello. It is. They commissioned a lot of the art specifically for this book, which is part of why it had like, been a while since their last thing, Compendium, but like this thing is absolutely gorgeous, and it really helps with the fantasy of trying to imagine what you want these things to be. Like, if I just inserted that art as a token into the campaign, like, some people would drop their jaw. It's just very good. Yeah, of course, the token would be the size of the map, because 200 feet long. Yeah. Um, Foundry would not like me, that's for sure. <laughs> I can already hear your computer buzzing. Alright, so this thing is actually, to an extent, a whale, meaning it doesn't actually breathe water, it can just hold its breath for 30 days, which is a fascinating tidbit to put in the stat block. Yeah, it's one of those things where, clearly, I think that was put in as to be analogous to a real whale. I can't see any other particular reason, based on the stat block at least, to write it that way, but... I will say, the fact that that is the case does have a few interesting implications for the creature and how you might encounter it. One of them being, if theoretically this thing is requires air to breathe, that means that the insides aren't necessarily going to be fully filled with water, especially the, like, the lung cavities and things like that that are reliant on pure oxygen. Since it doesn't breathe water specifically, that might mean that if you're able to make your way like through the blowhole into a drier area that maybe isn't lined with dangerous stomach acid, uh, you have an environment to explore in if you wanted to go more of the dungeon route. Hmm. Yeah, uh, if you do go the dungeon route, just fair warning, this is probably going to have some body horror in it. I don't really know how to get around that when you're like just inside a whale. Yeah, know, know your party and what they're comfortable with and not. Don't don't just go throwing people inside the blowhole for no good reason. So the writers of this monster have done a really great thing, which we talked about earlier, in that they've given the creature an inherent weakness, and that is lightning damage. Yes, so it has a feature of its stat block called lightning aversion. If the solution takes lightning damage, it must succeed on a constitution saving throw or become stunned until the start of its next turn. The DC is equal to half of the lightning damage that the creature took. Now, it is worth noting this creature is 8 up on con because it is a giant whale. However, that is still a huge weakness for a creature to have. It also has legendary resistances, so it can choose to succeed. But if it burns through those and just gets stunned for a turn... That is, like, the party's gateway to being able to actually get something successful done on this thing, especially because that stunning will remove the legendary actions that it takes, and depending on your DM, might even take away the lair actions. Yeah, and honestly, you need to stun it, because this thing can move faster than anything in the water. Its base swim speed is 120 feet. Yeah, it's actually kind of bonkers, because, yeah, no, if you don't have a way to slow it down... It, say you finally manage to whittle down its hit points pretty low, it can choose to move 440 feet per round via movement plus dash action, that's 240, and three legendary actions that move half of its movement speed. 
uh, and that gets you the rest of the way. So, like, the party cannot keep up with this thing if it wants to run away and isn't hampered in some way. Yeah, which is honestly, I, I don't know, uh, if you want your party to actually be able to kill it, maybe hold off on that. On the other hand, letting your party know that they have to figure out a way to, like, keep this thing from moving is uh, an interesting challenge for them. Yeah, I can see almost, uh, I can't remember what the name is, like Clash of the Titans, where they, like, trap the Kraken in the pool of the cities, they can try and kill it. Oh, shit, yeah, yeah. That was a movie. It was a movie. It was two movies, actually, I think. Yes, it, it was, in fact, there were two. This thing is really, really good at taking down objects, or ships particularly. It's a siege monster, like most gargantuan creatures. And it can create whirlpools just by diving underwater. Yeah, so it can do a bunch of things with legendary actions. It also has a roar, which, if it lets out the roar while it's at the surface of the body of water, it creates the tsunami spell appearing in the space adjacent. Uh, that it doesn't need to maintain concentration on. So a ship that is insufficiently large is probably just capsized instantly. Hmm. And if it isn't, the creature, it, the ability is called Swimming Leap, but it's essentially it can breach itself and then just land on things. Yeah. I mean, you could have one of those, I have mixed feelings about it myself, but you have one of those like encounters with something out at sea that just like ends up shipwrecking your ship and that's how you end up crash landed on another island i don't personally love that trope for some character like autonomy reasons but this is the kind of creature that will do that and not blink twice yeah i remember we we had that happen to us in a friend's campaign and i recall being pretty salty after the session about it it did lead to like some really cool things when we got shipwrecked on the island but it did feel weird that we were just like purposefully unable to do anything yeah. In general, not a big fan of encounters where the goal is not even to, like, escape, but is just, like, to not die and then wake up somewhere else. But, you know, to each of their own. There's probably parties where that catches on more. It's really up to player preference. Uh, but that that being said, the solution, if you're looking for something to just straight up wreck a ship or have it do that to, like, a ship out at sea that isn't one that the party members are on, so that way they can observe that this is something that it does and that they shouldn't be on a ship without having it happen to them themselves. Yeah. Or if you want to have them encounter this titan in a more neutral way, just, like, having it accidentally, like, bat their ship with its tail and them having to deal with their now, like, kind of crippled ship. Mm-hmm. Just as, like, a, oh... You're out there now. You're out in the deep. There's things that could, like, kill you by looking at you if they wanted. Yeah. It's always good to, like, lead it in. That's a great way to, you know, if you're really trying to start towing the line between eventually having to deal with this creature, you know, smaller encounters earlier along the way, like you'd do with a villain, always help. Yeah. And it would be awesome for this creature, since it is such a siege monster, that if it were actively deciding to go and destroy things for the party to catch it in the process of destroying buildings objects ships and that way the party could basically take their own tact at how they wanted to begin the combat with this thing yeah it suffers from something that we talked about earlier that we'll talk about i think in more detail with the next creature of like what does it look like when this thing is really targeting individuals? Does it make sense for it to do so? Really, its giant 
bite and tail are much more useful in just fucking shit up, to put it mildly. So I think if you focus on that, then yeah, it's easy to add on some like additional fish creatures that are with it or cultists that are protecting it to deal with mm. as like the actual foes that are focused on the party as the party is trying to make their attempt on it. Yeah. But at that point, as we've mentioned before, this creature becomes less of a monster and more of a timed event. Yeah. So it's a, it's a careful balance. It really just depends on what you have available to them. It is worth noting that as part of its description, uh, because it is averse to lightning, it does have a grudge against bronze dragons and tries to hunt young bronze dragons before they grow old and become actual threats to this thing. So one way that you can add some more going on is if you, say, manage to convince a few bronze dragons to fight with you and then they're drawing its attacks while the party is getting a chance to get the right shot lined up for their super lightning infused javelin boy or whatever so yeah that is the solution there's a lot of things you can do with this between its swallow ability and the fact that it breathes air you really do have the choice here despite it being an aquatic creature to do it as a jonah and the whale encounter yeah and I think even if you didn't want to do, like, it's actually a dungeon on the inside, I think you could do Get Swallowed, and that's where, like, the creature's weak spot is, to, like, the, the spot where it can actually, like, get hit by lightning and have no chance of a save. Hmm. So you could do something interesting like that, where if the party really wants the best shot at it, you're going to have that one really zealous paladin who's willing to get swallowed by the whale for a chance to impale its heart. I mean, now I'm just imagining Oath of Vengeance Paladin. His name is Ishmael. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be, it would be Ahab, right? Ishmael's just the narrator. Ishmael actively is like, this is dumb, we're all gonna die. Yeah, Ishmael would be the bard who has uh, a few bad things to say about this concept. Yeah, I know, I have not actually read Moby Dick. I, I just know it from the memes. Nor have I, mea culpa. All right, so yeah, the solution. Definitely an interesting one. Probably not as interesting as our next candidate, though. Yes, this one is one that I'm really excited to talk about and maybe at some point even run, although probably differently, which Don't is Carcos, the CR-30 crab monstrosity titan. It is a gargantuan crab. If I read correctly, I believe this thing is something like multiple miles. Oh, it occupies a space roughly a thousand feet by a thousand feet with a height of 500 feet and stone buildings rising 300 feet up from the top of its shell. Bigger than anything else. That's more impressive on the, like, civilized races who constructed those buildings than about the... (laughs) We built a 300 foot tall stone tower on top of a moving crab. Oh, so they actually do a decent job of, like, explaining it to you. like, props to the Haven Discord for some of this extra lore. So they mentioned that because it's a crab that is underwater, the buildings can be built pretty high without the need for stairs and ladders. So being underwater changes the architecture meaningfully, which is, like, a cool little tidbit to add in there. Um, I still think it would be very hard to build on this thing while it's moving, but uh, it does say that while it was the home of the Karkinos, who were the people who lived in this city on top of this crab, it mostly was asleep, which mm. is pretty cute. So anyway, all that to say that they did a good job in justifying why this crazy, nonsensical monster physically could exist the way it does. So yeah, crab with a city on its back. 
it does quite a few things. The first thing it does is it causes earthquakes wherever it goes. Yeah, it literally has a bonus action to cause a shockwave moving through. Uh, If it's underwater, it creates this giant pulse of water that pushes people away. If it's on, uh, it deals 100 thunder damage to all structures in contact with the ground in the area. So if this thing manages to crawl up on land to a coastal town, it will just level the city in pretty much one go, and then people can get trapped underneath it. So, I mean, it makes sense for a thing that big to be able to do that, but it's pretty nasty if it gets the chance to. (laughs) Yeah. If this doesn't kill you, it does have, like, claw attacks, and it can pick you up with its claw. Uh, This is, again, where Pat was talking about, I don't know if this makes sense just not to be... Well, the claw slam is an area attack. Its grapple attack, though, is single target, and that seems awfully delicate and precise <laughs> for this crab. Yeah, the art for this one, again, is absolutely fantastic. I love the fantasy here. But you look at it, it has, like, two big claws and then a series of smaller menacing claws kind of tucked underneath the carapace. Yeah, honestly, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. I love it so much. But even like the smaller claws, like a a creature would need to be very precisely grabbed by the point between the two claws for it to possibly like have a chance at actually ripping it. Yeah, this is also a thing. It also has a catch missiles reaction that it can use on huge or smaller objects. And I'm like, okay, you throw a huge boulder at it, it catches it. Awesome. You shoot an arrow at this thing. A, I don't think it cares. B, how? How dec- this crab has a minus one dexterity. How is it catching a a human-sized arrow? Yeah, I mean, that's- yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, I just wouldn't bother with arrows because this thing has almost 700 hit points. 650, but... Yeah, I honestly... (laughs) And we'll talk about it in a second when we get to, like, what a recommended revision of this looks like. But if I were running it, I'm inclined to honestly give it immunity to all bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, regardless of magical or non-magical, because it's massive, and even if you manage to hit it with your super powerful legendary mace, like, it's got so much more shell than one blow is ever going to do. Yeah. That said, even if you can't hurt it, it is still a fun threat to run away from, because it's got its grapple, it's got its cloth slam, it can throw things that it's grappled, which is hilarious. (laughs) So, you know, imagine it manages, you try and hurl, like, a giant boulder at this thing. You know, if it can be huge, it's up to 15 feet, 15 foot radius, or it's going to be 15 foot diameter boulder. You huck it at this thing. It uses its reaction to catch it and then just binks it back at you. And it can use that in replacement of any, either of its grasping claw attacks, which it can use two of during a turn, as well as two claw slams. And then it has three legendary actions. Yes. Needless to say, this thing is a beast, and it did you straight up, if you had this thing march on a town, it is more dangerous than the Tarrasque, which is the only other CR-30 creature that at least comes out of the monster manual. This thing is, like, even more efficient. I think the Tarrasque just has fewer attacks. Yeah, it has fewer attacks. Oh, and doesn't do the fucking earthquake passively. Yeah, as a bonus action. Yeah, okay, not passively, but, like, it doesn't have other bonus action economy, so no, essentially it's... passively. So, 
I, I do want to reference, there are also two variant stat blocks of this thing, the corrupted version of Crack House and the restored version, both of which add extra things that it can do. One is the evil version and one is the good version. The standard stat block is the neutral version of the crab. Yeah. And these are pretty cool. Obviously, they're going to be, like, pretty to somewhat dependent on, like, the fact that you're sticking to what lore there is. It also has, you know, the layer actions, regional effects that go along with it. I do like the restored one is kind of, like, very psionic and has a force field around it, which I think lends itself pretty well to having to send in an infiltration party to take down the lodestones first while keeping this thing from getting to the city. Yeah. This one, even more than the solution, does seem to me like a whole adventure rather than an encounter sort of monster. Yeah, no, I've, and I've thought about this one a fair bit ever since it came out. This is like pretty much first where my eyes went when I was looking at the monsters, because honestly, because pretty art, I'm kind of a gremlin in that way. But, you know, when you're talking about having a literal city on top of a creature that is, you know, a thousand, a thousand feet in each direction, that lends itself much more to like characters have to get on board and then they have to find a way to take this thing down from the inside because lord knows you can't do it from the outside so i think you could take pieces of it apart and turn it into separate maybe sub encounters like one is having just like the carapace and maybe you have to break this thing's legs off for it to be able to stay in one place long enough to get inside of it so the carapace has its own stat block that you can use to take down the legs and then once you're on top of it You've got these little spines that come around, like sort of like the Carcos's immune system, and they work to try and slow people down as they make their way through the city. Yeah, I, I would love to see like a stat block for like parasites on the big crab, and it's like yeah, this is a this is a Bernicol, but it also eats meat. <laughs> yeah, especially in like the corrupted version, if this thing is really like pretty malevolent and taking things over, it's gonna. It's willing to churn through you if you are invading it in a hope to take it down. And they make a pretty big deal in the description, too, of saying that this thing has a heart, in the in the lore at least, written for it. There's a heart that's at the center of the city once you get through the three circles, and that is where it gets corrupted if it gets reached or something like that. And probably also where you would presumably kill the creature if you were able to get to it, so... Having that be a final encounter where maybe if you if this thing's been corrupted by a warlock or something, then that's where the warlock's base is, and the heart causes all sorts of chaotic magical effects inside the chamber to keep everything going crazy. There's a real lot of really cool things you could do if you are willing to decompose this thing down from one honestly unfathomable encounter into multiple adventure-shaped portions. Man, I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking, I really think that there is something to be said for this and then make a bunch of other creatures that are kind of like living gods in your setting. Like individual examples of megafauna that are revered as like aspects of the world. Yeah, no, if you really want to go into the aspects of nature themselves, the old gods, you know, taken form, uh, living amongst people this is this is a hell of a way to do it and i really love the flavor that is built into how it's done and the art really draws that inspiration of you know deific levels 
Also, final thing for me, at least, about the stat block of this. So it does have layer actions and regional effects. Among its regional effects, the most interesting of them, are crabs and other crustaceans within three miles of Krakos come under the enlarge effect of enlarge reduce and become unusually aggressive, banding together in packs and moving towards Krakos to aid it. Uh, which is a long way of saying crab rave? Yeah. <laughs> you could literally, like, <laughs> this thing finds its way to a crab bed and just summons i mean like i having been to some of the coastal areas in like north carolina you know if you just turned every crab into a a dog-sized crab and summoned all of them to invade a city it's one hell of an army yeah no doubt i find that extremely funny for what is otherwise a really serious creature mm-hmm it is also at the same time causing, like, earthquakes, smaller ones, not, like, actual damaging ones, up to ten miles away. Yeah. This this thing is coming. I also should say this thing can move at 50 feet per round as the base movement, and then it has the option to, you know, dash, move with legendary actions, so, you know, theoretically it gets up to, like, 175 feet per round if it's really trying to truck, which is... On one hand, pretty slow, given the scale of the creature on the whole, but is still, like, pretty damn fast, which can be fun to deal with. That's like 30 feet per second, which is 20 miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that's no joke. That is, <laughs> you know, moving pretty quickly, but... At that point, it could just destroy things by bumping into them. You don't really need the attacks, per se. Yeah, I'm surprised it doesn't have the same thing this Luchin does. This Luchin has a... I'm pretty sure... I guess maybe it doesn't. There was one creature I know in this compendium that has just, like, it bumps into things and they take damage. Oh, crushing movement. There's Volgoth, which is just a possessed pirate ship, more or less. Uh, and it can ram things and just deals damage by smashing into them. Um, so almost surprised that that doesn't come with this, but at the same time, I guess it's kind of figured that it's probably going to break everything when it steps on it anyway, so. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm, I would have been absolutely shocked if this thing did not have a ghost pirate ship in it, and it does. Yep. You gotta, you gotta check some boxes if you're gonna make a nautical compendium, and this one checks at least the ones that are immediately obvious. You got megalodon sharks, you've got lots of pirate items, and character stuff creation options available to you overall it's honestly if i i have half a brain to run a like shorter nautical campaign if i weren't so busy with the chromatic beasts and things of that nature but cool boy you got some options here this is the problem with this podcast is it doesn't change what i'm excited about it just me makes me excited about more things and i'm you know in a bunch of campaigns i'm running a bunch of things I ran Kobolds Ate My Baby yesterday. I'm running Riffs on Friday. <laughs> yeah. Too many things. Safe to say, we love our RPGs, and we're only spoiling ourselves a little bit when we spend so much time talking about them to you all, but hopefully you enjoy getting to hear us nerd out about these things, and if you ever decide to run one of these things for yourselves, invite us. We'd love to play with you. So yeah, final thoughts on big creatures in the game. 
to me, it's really going to be a case-by-case basis on how you want to run these. Some of them do work as, like, actual combat encounters, where it's like you're facing off against a creature. But generally, the bigger they get, the harder it is to justify that, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I think there is an element to which, as we've talked about with other concepts in D&D, there are places where 5e breaks down because of scale, because of environment, other things. And in particular, gargantuan creatures are one of those. So when you're thinking about this, one, really do some thinking about what you want this to look like in terms of number of creatures, what the environment is, how you want the mythos around taking it down to be. And then most importantly, to make this cool and to make it satisfying, don't be afraid to break some rules, really homebrew around the normal systems and make things feel the way that you're imagining them, as long as you're at least giving players enough context that they can react accordingly. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. I think, you know, as always, would recommend reviewing this homebrew. Uh, We'll have the link in the description to go look through Abyss. This is a small part of a large document with lots of pretty art and helpful things. Feel free to review it. Join the Haven Discord if you're interested in talking with them more about it. Yeah, they're one of the probably the best communities out there for introductory homebrew and like how do you get into homebrew and what are, you know, we keep talking about all these unwritten rules that Wizards has and how they design things. Haven really knows what's up with that. Yeah, I was going through the Discord to prepare for this and one of my favorite things uh, touched on our last week's discussion was uh, all rangers are going to be bad, don't try, which is, you know, maybe not an unwritten rule of homebrew, but... uh, a good written rule for don't try to fix what's already broken with the ranger. So they have a lot of good thoughts. And I think, you know, if you're really into these discussions on design, getting engaged with a community on Discord is going to be a faster way of really hashing out these issues, albeit with strangers and talking to them about why homebrew works or doesn't work. Hmm. Not to say that people don't have their own opinions on the matter. And you'd, as always, be prepared for disagreement when you engage with strangers on the internet. I mean, I was just going to say, like, I disagree with that uh, with that point about the ranger, but I'm just defensive about rangers. So, I think that caps us off. Uh, what do you want to talk about next week, Andrew? So, I had this idea that we would do another kind of compare and contrast episode, because our last couple have done ever so well. But I want to talk about chronomancy, time magic which is a fun thing, and there are a ton of takes for how primarily wizards can get their hands on some time magic, including the Dunama from Wildmount. But time magic is rough, because we do play D&D in a turn-based system. So how do you manage that? Yep. Stay tuned next week for plenty of discussion on wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff and the price one pays with when they mess with the order of time and making the DM do even more bookkeeping than we already do. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it's mostly making your friends at the table hate you. (laughs) It's less like, ooh, boy, you're going to get a fucking inevitable stuck on your ass. Although that can happen too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Primus is not well known for appreciating changes to law and order. Nope. All right, folks, that's it for us. I've been Patrick. And I've been Andrew. Catch you next week. Bye.